This is Unfiltered, episode 148 for June 17th, 2015. A cyber attack on our government far worse than originally thought. The president of the American Federation of Government Employees saying in a letter, quote, we believe that the central personnel data file was the targeted database and that the hackers are now in possession of all personnel data for every federal employee, every federal retiree and up to one million former federal employees. Welcome to Unfilter, episode 148 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show that's distracting you from all of that TV you shouldn't be watching. My name is Chris, and Mr. Chase is out this week. I think he's chasing cars or something. I'm not sure what he's doing, but I think it's awesome. But no worries. He has left behind a great show. No, not really. It was actually producer Matt and I. <laughs> but it is going to be a great show nonetheless. And I, I cannot wait for him to get back here next week. We'll give him an update on everything. But this week, uh, this data breach that we talked a little bit about last week has gotten much, much larger. And we thought it might. Uh, we're going to get into this in just a little bit. And also... Over the weekend, Edward Snowden was thrown under the bus big time uh, by a London newspaper. And uh, by the time Tuesday rolled around, he was pretty much exonerated. But you might not have heard that part of the story. So uh, we'll talk about that in today's episode. Also, a big update on Iraq and the situation in uh, with ISIS. And before we get out of here, we have a little TPP stuff we're going to have to talk about today. And uh, some whistleblower stuff from the Army, as well, of course, as our high notes. So it's a lot to cover today. So there'll be a lot for us to uh, bring Mr. Chase up to speed on. Why don't we start with that NSA stuff? You know me, I like to start there. And um, <clears throat> it came out this week that uh, Edward Snowden's files had been cracked by the Russian and Chinese governments exposing the NSA and GCK- GCHQ secrets to our competitors or enemies. American journalist Glenn Greenwald has pulled all credibility out from under the British media. He claims BBC and Sunday Times, who reported Chinese and Russian intelligence had access to Snowden's files, weren't true. The thing is, the whistleblower destroyed them before coming to Moscow. But the media didn't delve very far. In fact, the headlines just ran with it without asking many questions. British officials were quoted, plus bad guys Russia and China spying. That always adds a nice touch. And Snowden was smeared. It's filled with lies. In the article, it says the government official whose identity we're hiding says that Snowden has blood on his hands, and then later it says there's no evidence anyone has been harmed. Well, if there's no evidence anyone has been harmed, how can he have blood on his hands? It's just a way of smearing whistleblowers and sources. Speaking of sources, the widely circulated report cited anonymous government officials who say Russia and China tapped into secret NSA files obtained by Edward Snowden. Well, one of the authors explains how he investigates such claims. Now, uh, before we get to this guy's report, uh, this guy is, is really, he's a, he's a gem. The author of the report that said this Snowden stuff had been cracked, it's going to be a little painful. Well, we're going to watch this together because this is the state of journalism and we need to see this. I'm joined now by Tom Harper. He is the home affairs correspondent for the Sunday Times who is reporting this story. And Tom joins us now live. Tom, thank you for being with us. So this is the guy who said that the uh, Snowden files have been cracked by the Chinese and Russian governments. Just want to dive a little deeper into the nature of your reporting. You name unnamed sources 
How do senior officials at Number 10 Downing Street know that these files were breached? Um, well, I don't know uh, the answer to that, George. Um, what? All we know is that um, this is effectively the official position of the British government. What? Um, we picked up on it um, a while ago, and we've been working on okay. it. And so they picked up on this a while ago, and they've been working on it. Okay, they picked up on... Trying okay. to stand it up through multiple sources. And when we approached uh, the British government late last week with our... Um, evidence, they confirmed effectively what you read today in the Sunday Times. So, so you got a lead that some stuff had been cracked potentially, and you did some write-up on it, and you went to the government, and they essentially confirmed so, it. Um, okay. Uh, it's it's uh, obviously allegations at the moment from our point of view, and it's really for the British government to um, to defend it. Well, I, I do. Well, no, 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 no. You're the journalist. I have to ask, though, just in understanding the nature of what's in the files, how do they know what was in them if they were encrypted? Has the British government also gotten into these files? Well, um, I mean, the files came from America um, and the UK, so uh, they may already have known for some time what. So the journalist's answer is. Snowden took. So the journalist's answer is is what? Hold on, his answer to that question is what? They may already have known for some time what Snowden took. Because they took their own... Because he took U.S. files, the U.S. may already know what he's taken. Okay, so uh, they may already have known for some time what Snowden took. Um, again, that's not something that we're clear on, so we don't uh, go into that level of detail in the story. We just publish uh, what we believe to be the position of the British government at the moment. You just publish what the British government told you to publish. You didn't even do any research, did you? You just publish what they told you to publish. Of the British government at the moment. Oh, I'm sorry, at the moment. Okay, let's play that back a little bit. Tell in the story, we just publish uh, what we oh. believe to be the position of the British government at the moment. There's journalism right there for you, folks. Your article asserts uh, that it is not clear if the files were hacked or if Snowden gave these files over when he was in Hong Kong uh, and Russia. So, so which is it? Well, again, uh, sorry to just repeat myself, George, but we don't know, so we haven't written that in the paper. Um, you know, it could be either. It could be another uh, scenario. Um, when you're dealing with the world of intelligence, there are so many unknowns and so many possibilities. It's difficult to state anything um, with certainty. Oh. And so we've been very careful just to stick to... Insu in inferences, insinuations, implying things, uh, but not actually claiming it. What we are um, able to substantiate. So we're just really hearing, you know, what the British government is, is saying at this point. Um, the article yeah. mentions these MI6 agents. Uh, were they directly under threat as a result of the information leaked, or was it just a precautionary measure? And what do you suppose his answer is to this? What do you suppose his answer is? Guys? Guys? Um, guys? Again, I'm afraid to disappoint you, we don't know. I mean, there oh! was a suggestion um, that some of them may have been under threat. Yeah, and let me just jump ahead a little bit. Let's just jump ahead a little bit, because you're you kind of starting to get the idea here, I think. Uh, throughout Britain. Um, and then finally presented um, uh, the story to the government, and they... Yeah, it gives a little more clear clarity. So essentially what happens, and why this is why we're going through this painfulness, is they got a leak from a very high-up government official that said, this has happened. They've cracked it. The China's cracked it. 
I can, you know you can trust me because it's some really high-up official. So then they created a whole story around that from that leak, and then they went to the GCHQ, and the GCHQ says, yeah, that's it. That's what happened. We picked up on the story a while back from um, an extremely well-placed source in the home office. Oh. Um, and then... So an official, unofficial leak. Um, ...carried on trying to substantiate... Uh, what was going on through various sources in various agencies. Of course, nobody would admit anything, so you can try to substantiate all day long, but if it's the government that's doing the activities, they're the ones that have to confirm it. Uh, throughout Britain, um, and then finally presented um, uh, the story to the government, and they, um, they effectively confirmed uh, what you read in today's Sunday Times. And then from there, it went all over the freaking web. And that is... What happens? And it gives it gives whistleblowers a bad name. And we're going to get more into whistleblowers uh, here in just a minute. Um, in fact, why don't we start there? Let's go to whistleblowers next, and then we'll go to the data breach. I don't know if you guys have heard about this Green Beret a whistleblower who uh, was part of a U.S. hostage recovery system, and he's blowing the whistle on how busted it is. I just want to play this because it's fascinating. Now to stunning testimony in Washington today, the former Green Beret hero turned whistleblower. A highly decorated lieutenant colonel now saying the U.S., could be doing much more to free American hostages, including an American woman, a mother, a wife, held captive with her baby and her husband by the Taliban. ABC's chief investigative correspondent, Brian Ross, with the urgent plea to get them help. This American woman, Caitlin Coleman, and her husband and infant son are hostages of the Taliban tonight because the U.S. botched a negotiation to free them. I am prisoner of the Taliban. That was the stunning allegation today from a combat-decorated Green Beret hero, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Amory, who ran a secret Pentagon hostage unit and today defied his superiors and went public before Congress. The hostage recovery effort was broken. And the Lieutenant Colonel also said American hostage Warren Weinstein, accidentally killed in a U.S. drone strike in Pakistan, also could have been saved. But, Amarine testified, chaos and infighting in the Obama administration, including between the Pentagon and the FBI, crippled a plan to swap this convicted Afghan drug lord for Weinstein and six other hostages. Hmm. Warren Weinstein is dead. I used every resource available, but I failed them. Weinstein's family had described to David Muir the agony the family went through watching his pleas for help. It's just heartbreaking because he's asking for help and I can't give him any. After Weinstein's death, the family publicly criticized the U.S. efforts to free him, as have the families of other American hostages who also have been killed. And Brian's with us now. We've reported here that the White House is reviewing the administration's hostage policy. And Brian, do we have any idea when we're going to learn their findings? Well, today, officials of the White House said the results of that review are expected soon, likely, we're told, in a week or two. And mm. they stress no effort has been spared or will be spared to try to save any American hostage. And we'll stay so, on the cases of these families. Brian, thanks. I will watch for that as well to see if they uh, do actually release that hostage report. Uh, there's also, a, they're in the uh, supporter sync in that whistleblower folder, there's additional clips in there about uh, additional retaliations that are happening against whistleblowers. It's kind of an interesting thing right now. Uh, but we need to shift gears and get to this data breach because this is a huge deal. And uh, that was our opening clip as well. And we're going to start there and then uh, we got to get into this. Welcome back to Outnumbered, a cyber attack on our government. 
far worse than originally thought, the president of the American Federation of Government Employees, saying in a letter, quote, we believe that the central personnel data file was the targeted database and that the hackers are now in possession of all personnel data for every federal employee, every federal retiree and up to one million former federal employees. That wow. And I. What is it right now? The current number as of last data is like almost 3 million uh, current federal employees. So somewhere around 2.9 million, something like that. I mean, this is a lot of people, previous employers, contractors. Includes social security numbers and birth dates. The Office of Personnel Management has tried to downplay the scope and seriousness of this breach. When it was first reported last week, the agency said that only limited personal data or identifying information was breached. Well, Melissa, we know that that is not the case. I mean, it's now. Here's what I love about this panel. Okay, <clears throat> now I don't. Uh, I don't know uh, what these uh, what these fine hosts' background is. However, I do know the man in the middle is Dean Kane. You know, Superman. I, I don't think Dean Kane is a cyber terror expert, but I'm looking forward to their commentary. Pretty much everything on every one, 100% of their information was taken. No, it's amazing. And when you look at what they did, it no, seems like they're trying amazing. to compile a database where they know everything about government a database. employees and they're looking for weaknesses and they're looking for ways to profile them possibly. And, and you know, whether that's for blackmail purposes down the road. Um, I love this, man. She's into this. She's not cutting any corners. She's on Fox and she's giving you her analysis. You know, no one really knows. But when you talk to CEOs in this country who are in charge of cybersecurity, when you talk to CEOs, guys, because she's so important, she doesn't talk to like other people in the company. She only talks to CEOs. Because you got to understand, when you're on Fox, you're big time, so you got to talk directly to the boss. You know, no one really knows, but when you talk to CEOs in this country who are in charge of cybersecurity, companies like Palantir, you know, one of our greatest companies here in the U.S. That A greatest company does this kind of work. You know, they say that they don't work closely with the government enough. You know, I mean, when they're out in public, you hear the CEO of Google and those folks saying they don't want. You don't work with the government enough. That's what these companies are saying. You know, yeah, oh, uh, the go companies really want us to work more with the government. You know, I mean, when they're out in public, you hear the CEO of Google and those folks saying they don't want the government in their business. They don't want to be near the NSA. But behind closed doors, they sort of say the opposite thing, that they want to work with the government to try and help us protect ourselves and companies right. from these outside hackers. But Gosh, they just want to help us protect ourselves, guys. Thing That they want to work with the government to try and help us protect ourselves and companies right. from these outside hackers, but that the government isn't necessarily cooperating and sharing information, and government agencies aren't working together with each other. Come on, we just need to share more information. Come on. So it's a situation that we're just not solving very well. And I think we have to take this a lot more seriously. I mean, one could make the argument, Dean, that cybersecurity is one of the biggest threats to this country on the table. Mayor Giuliani. Dean Kane. She's talking to Dean Kane. Dean Kane asking Dean, Dean, isn't cybersecurity one of the biggest threats facing America? Now, why, why is Chris playing this? Why? This is the state of dialogue in the media around cybersecurity. We've got to, this is the, we've got to change this. On the table, Mayor Giuliani was on the Fox Business Network yesterday and said just that. This is one of the biggest threats that this country faces. And to learn that so many people were affected and that the breach went on for so long, 
undetected over a year. What do you think, Dean? What's your great commentary on this, Dean Kane? Bye. Well, what does Mayor Giuliani know about security? <laughs> I mean, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's so terrifying to, to me. But the fact that, you know, the, the agencies aren't talking no. to each other and that the real, like, like, what's the name of that company? You know, the, uh, the, the greatest company ever that you mentioned? Because I don't even know what you're talking about. Palantir. It's like, just those one guys of many companies that does that. But stuff, those yeah. guys aren't rocking it. And that, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing. We, we should be better than that. We really should be better than that. Do we know that it was China? Do we know that for well, a fact? Well, no. They're de- Beijing's they denying it. No. Yeah. Oh, shocker. No. Shocker. <laughs> Hopping to it, yeah, exactly. So if they, if it was Kimberly, would you say the United States needs to to get back? Absolutely. But guess what? We're not doing that because China said we didn't do this. But if you know what I love, if you think we did, and you're even considering coming after so us, yeah. we will consider this an act of war by the United yeah. States of America against China. Sure. Remember, the White House hasn't confirmed that China has done it. It's only the media that has said that. The White House has not said it was been China. And, you know, China is just outpacing us by far in this area. They have no shame about it. They steal anything they can. China is outpacing us. Can we think about that statement for a second? Remember how we just found out that the NSA has the entire Internet under surveillance, that they have compromised Chinese cellular networks, that they have embedded malware in routers, that they have deployed malware in computers, that they can intercept SSL traffic, that they can... Really? China? Really? We Nobody beats the United States when it comes to this stuff. Nobody's got us. And I love the whole concept here that we're behind and that we got to step it up because we're getting wiped. Because they want the technology capability, the defense contracts, the military secrets to be able to improve their own capability as it relates to nuclear submarines. If you don't think the U.S. does hacks, Google one word, Stuxnet. I haven't seen China do Stuxnet. Nobody's done Stuxnet except for, oh, I'll just let you Google it. If you don't know it, go Google it. Making them quieter, inability for the U.S. to be able to detect some of their, mm-hmm. you know, vessels. So, and they've copied our technology. I mean, they're just like the, the biggest crooks on the block. Biggest they copied crooks. it and improved it. I mean, Andrea, now that the information's out there, now what are they going to do with it? <laughs> well, that's the scary thing. But I, I don't think that the administration is doing nothing. I mean, think about the big story coming out of Washington, D.C. today. Now, this is actually... This is actually some decent commentary, uh, and this is going to lead us into one of our next topics. The big trade deal. Who is the one country that is selectively and I believe deliberately and shrewdly left out of that trade deal by the administration and by most congressional Republicans? China. And I think that it is the president sticking it to them. And that's why Republicans are getting on board, because think about it. That's the last thing the Chinese want. We are essentially trying to build up these other nations around China by trading with them. The Chinese were left out of that, left out of this deal. I think it's very smart, but it still does not resolve the problem that you said, Sandra, which is they're getting our information. They can still use it against us. Yeah, the trade deal. Yeah. So we're going to get to the trade deal here in a moment. Uh, So but she's got some good commentary there. I wanted to give you kind of an idea of potential potentially uh, what has been taken before we get to the trade deal, though. Uh, um, Producer Matt went and grabbed uh, the uh, form that looks like it has been leaked. So these uh, forms were stored in a central database for the federal government, and they are uh, the questionnaire for national security positions. And it is a monster-sized form, you guys. And it's not just information about you. It's information about people you know, your connections to them. So if you're looking at the video version right now, I'm showing you, and I'm going to whip through this really fast, but this is a ton of information, everything about you. Let's stop at one of these pages right here. Uh, Employment activities, lots of employment information. Uh, Military history, of course, if you've served in the military. Marital status and relationship status. 
Uh, they want to know relatives, like all this information on your relatives, their information, all of their information, their income, all of this stuff is in here. Foreign activities you've done. It is a 127-page document that includes your social security number and signature on the last page. And if you filled one of these out, this might have just been leaked. And it's everything on you. It's everything on everybody you know. It is a massive amount of data. It could lead to massive, massive identity theft. A minimum. Here's a little more on, uh, on, on the data breach. For the second straight night, we begin with word of a major cyber theft involving information, possibly about you. Last night, we told you that theft of federal employee data is apparently much more extensive than the administration led everyone to believe. Tonight, word of a second breach. Correspondent Doug McKelway is here with breaking details from the North Lawn of the White House. Hi, Doug. Good evening, Brett. Indeed, Fox News has learned that there has been a second intrusion. This is different than the one that we told you about last night. It is by far larger, and it may contain deeply sensitive and personal information, not only from federal government workers, but from military personnel as well. It was uncovered on June 8th, just this month, as investigators were looking into the December intrusion. The federal government isn't describing the extent of damage from the cyber espionage of computers at the Office of Personnel Management, but cyber experts are. They took away the mother load. That assessment stemming from a blunt notice from a union representing federal workers, the American Federation of Government Employees. It told members last night, quote, the personal information of all 2.1 million current federal employees and an additional 2 million federal retirees and former federal employees may have been compromised wow. during a Chinese cyber attack. Woo. The Associated Press citing two people briefed on the attack, put the number much higher, 14 million present and former government employees. Included in the cyber heist, background checks and security clearance applications for thousands. They know who was in what position of trust, when, the kind of subjects that they would have dealt with. It is the kind of information that spies seeking to blackmail someone would crave. Information about former boyfriends, girlfriends, divorces, financial troubles and debts. But the main purpose of the intrusion points to spear phishing, the imitating of emails from a trusted source. Well, let's stop there. You guys know what spear phishing is, but that is just a mess. So we're going to keep watching that story go from more to more, and you'll probably see a little bit of it on uh, TechSnap as well. All right, let's talk about the trade bill. Let's, let's get into this, because this has been a mess this week. If you followed, they tried to get through uh, the uh, trade bill assist program, which was going to assist people that lost their jobs after the trade bill gets signed. That's a pretty bad sign. That, to me, seems like an indicator the trade bill is going to lead to some job losses if you're trying to have a trade bill assist package. They also tried to, fa- they also tried to get through some fast-track legislation. Uh, let's play through some of this. Chief Congressional Correspondent Mike Emanuel on Capitol Hill tonight to try to make sense of what has become a very complicated story. Hey, Mike. Brett, good evening. 140 Democrats voted against their party's president on providing aid money to workers who lose their jobs due to trade. President Obama made a last-minute appeal to Democrats, but it was clearly not enough. So this is a weird situation now. So Republicans are voting along the lines with Obama, and Democrats are voting against Obama. I don't think you ever nail anything down right here. It's always hope. Yet some Democrats didn't appreciate the president's pitch. Basically, the president uh, tried to both guilt people and then uh, impugn their integrity. And I don't think it was a very effective tactic. I wasn't sent here to simply accommodate somebody else's agenda. I was sent here to represent the people that I 
where I come from. Other Democrats said they were trying to prevent a disaster for American workers. America should not have to compete with starvation wages and environmental destruction. Everybody can't be like us. We understand that. We're not against trade. We want it to be fair. We want the American worker to be protected. That's what this is all about. In a sign of how unusual this debate has been, House Speaker John Boehner also urged his colleagues to pass trade promotion authority for the good of the economy and country. And this appeal to skeptical conservatives. We want to make darn sure that there's less authority for the president and more authority for the American people. That's what this bill does. It's a means to an end, and the end is more free trade uh, that's good for our economy and good for our country. With some conservatives calling the package Obama trade, Ways and Means Chairman Paul Ryan responded. Check this out. So you got that was Boner that was just speaking, and now Paul Ryan. They're both saying, let's go with Obama. I understand a lot of our members, especially on our side of the aisle, they don't trust this administration. <laughs> Join the club. Neither do I. That is precisely why I support this bill. TPA puts Congress in the driver's seat. But Republicans needed Democrats to support trade adjustment assistance in order to get to trade promotion authority. With presidential hopeful Hillary Clinton staying out of the trade debate, Leader Nancy Pelosi assumed the role of the most powerful female voice and rejected Mr. Obama. Today we have an opportunity to slow down. We all know we have to have, want to engage in trade promotion and the rest of that. But we have to slow down this problem because it is not Whatever the deal is with other countries, we want a better deal for America's workers. Yeah. Even though trade assistance failed overwhelmingly, the House Majority Leader forced a symbolic vote on trade promotion. Members are advised that we are proceeding to votes on the remaining two motions. Uh, That's right. With Republicans demonstrating they had the votes uh-huh. to move forward on trade, uh-huh. Ryan says the White House must now do more to win over Democrats. Now, the president has some work yet to do with his party to complete this process. This isn't over yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's stop right there. So um, uh, this has been interesting, right? Because you probably know uh, the deal of the TPP has been in uh, has been secret. Like if you want to read it, if you are if you're a legislator and you want to read it, you have to go into a secret room and you have to read the damn thing in secret. So we don't actually really know what it says. However, uh, we do have a little bit, uh, a little bit of a tip when I think it was Representative DeFazio was on, um, I want to say this might have been NPR when I grabbed this. And uh, he talks a little bit about who's actually been writing the TPP. So if you've heard about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and you're not quite sure if it's a good or bad thing, you probably you probably are aware it's a bad thing. The thing that seems to sort of set off red lights for me is it sounds like entire sections of the bill were written by business. The entire sections. Like the verbiage is written and they confirmed it in emails. And uh, on top of that, uh, it has some pretty high. It has some pretty risky things in it that could allow corporations to potentially override domestic laws. They could they could appeal to override the domestic law. Say you're a pharmaceutical company and uh, you don't like that you have to uh, pay a certain amount to Medicare. Uh, you have to charge only a certain amount to Medicare patients. You could challenge that law now through the TPP if you're a pharmaceutical company. Okay. And even if you don't win. You could still then assess a fee, billions of dollars of fees, 
even if you don't overturn the domestic law. Well, let me let me also quote to you from what uh, one of your fellow Democratic congressmen, uh, Ron Kine, said. We just heard him uh, tell our reporter, uh, Lisa Desjardins, he said, for our caucus not to even give the president, in his words, the decency or the respect to trust him a little bit to go out and negotiate a trade agreement, uh, he said, is selling the administration short. We have read in a classified form, which we can't talk about, the proposed document. We see sections that have been written by corporations and confirmed in emails that they were written by corporations and inserted into that bill. Uh, we, We just saw last night the Republicans repealed country of origin meat labeling. I believe 93% of the American people support that, and we did that because of a weaker trade agreement that we're in the WTO, we were where we can't be challenged by corporations, only by other governments. Under this one, any corporation can challenge any American law. And we know that the pharmaceutical industry is a big winner in this. That'd be huge. Uh, and it's very likely that they will come back and challenge our requirement that they give the lowest price to Medicaid patients, that they give reduced prices to people on Medicare Part D, that they will attack our, per- our bulk purchasing uh, for veterans. Now, the president's right. They can't make us repeal those laws. They can just make us pay to keep them. And that's why last night the Republicans repealed country of origin meat labeling because we would have had to pay $3 billion a year to label where your meat came from. Now that to me is a major, major, major concern. That is a major concern. And I want to play another clip from him because I think he makes some great points. Tonight, we hear from a House Democrat who's been a vocal opponent, Representative Peter DeFazio from Oregon. I spoke with him late this afternoon. Welcome, Congressman Peter DeFazio. Congressman, in voting down this trade legislation, something the president uh, has lobbied for for months, this was a direct rebuke to him, wasn't it? Uh, It's a rebuke to the policy he's trying to push through Congress uh, with fast-track authority, no amendments allowed, up or down vote only uh, for the largest trade agreement in the history of the United States, 29 chapters long. Uh, And it was a rebuke for what we know of those policies. It's a classified document, but many of us have read part of it. Uh, It does not do many of the things he purports it does. It does not have enforceable labor standards. It does not have enforceable environmental standards. It doesn't do anything about currency manipulation. He admits that. Uh, And uh, it sets up new secret private tribunals, which are only uh, accessible by multinational corporations where they can challenge our domestic laws. That's uh, that's pretty uh, amazing stuff. Congressman, you told reporters uh, earlier that the president hurt his own cause, in effect, by what he said to members. I want to stop there. Um, That, I think, is uh, probably if you've been uh, sort of following the TPP but don't quite understand what's going on. Uh, I think that's a pretty great understanding of what the hell is at stake and why it's so awful. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have more information about it. It sounds like there's actually some decent pushback. I want to switch gears and cover uh, Iraq and ISIS kind of in, in uh, one segment. Uh, we have uh, – this, uh, this is an online show that Fox does, I believe. I don't actually think this makes it on the air, but I'm not sure. Uh, it's, it, it's their media, media bias bash show. And uh, they're asking a very interesting question. We've talked a lot about boots on the ground and the trainers and special advisors in Iraq. But you all know there's a whole nother number over there that we don't ever, ever talk about. And it's a big number. The contractors, your Blackwater types over there or whatever their name is, Academy or whatever. How many of them are over in Iraq? 
Welcome to Bias Bash. I'm Lauren Green. The White House made headlines last week for announcing they are sending up to 450 more U.S. troops to Iraq to help advise in the fight against ISIS. Yet the media hasn't been asking whether American contractors are in Iraq, and if so, how many? Here with more is Fox News contributor Ellen Ratner. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you so much. Contractors just get lost in the, in the, in the shuffle here. We never even think about them. Well, we don't think about them, and the press is not asking about them. And I remember being in Iraq uh, as a guest of the military, and we were taken into a room, and in it was a big map that showed how many troops were there and how many contractors. Now, back then, it was a one-to-one, -one, but we had a lot of troops. Nobody knows how many contractors are there. Nobody knows what the responsibilities of the contractors. Nobody knows who's contracting with them. You know, in the olden days, these guys were called mercenaries. And uh, now they're called contractors. What are their responsibilities? Oh. Are they armed? Are they not armed? Remember, uh, there, there was some a lot of trouble with Blackwater, uh, and they've gotten to, into a lot of trouble. Some people have been sentenced mm -hmm. to prison. But we don't know who is contracting them, what department they're responsible, who they're responsible for, how many of them there are. None of this is being asked by the press. Where is the press? Where is the press? Well, you're on filter shows here. But where is the press? That is a good question. Okay. So I just wanted to kind of make you think about that a little bit. There's obviously not a lot to dig in there. <clears throat> now, let's cover a little bit of ISIS in America. Okay, a little ISIS. Now, remember last week I said something to the effect of, I'm really sick of the media quoting these things that ISIS tweets, because it could be anybody, like some 17-year-old kid running a Twitter account. Tonight, a 17-year-old honor student from a D.C. suburb, Ali Shukri Amin, pleading guilty to giving material support to ISIS after the FBI tracked him down for recruiting for the terror group. Oh, my gosh. The FBI received information that Amin was communicating online with known and unknown individuals. We had a guy that was, like, totally watching hashtags on Twitter while he ate pizza. And believed to be members of ISIL, and that Amin was supporting violent jihad. Mm. We now know Ali Shukri Amin, who dropped out of a Manassas, Virginia high school in... A 17-year-old boy was supporting jihad. ...February, was a blogger for jihad, the brains behind a controversial, now-suspended Twitter handle known as Amariki Witness, which promoted itself as dedicated to raising awareness about the upcoming conquest of the Americas. Amin worked to create a prolific online presence that included more than 4,000 followers on his Twitter account. Using the moniker Amriki Witness, Amin was an influential online figure influential. who inspired individuals who wanted to financially support ISIL. All right, so let's stop there. Uh, so that's uh, so this kid gets he's getting wrapped up in this. This next clip has uh, some interesting statistics on the amount of arrests and investigations for uh, insider attacks inspired by ISIS. Federal agents say they've made significant terror arrests in America's largest city. They picked up a New York City college student in an alleged ISIS-inspired plot to blow up targets, including the George Washington Bridge, as you know, one of the most traveled crossings in the nation. The Fed saying 20-year-old Munter Omar Salah was tracked online as he heaped praise on the ISIS savages and voiced support for the Charlie Hebdo attack in Paris. According to court documents that we're seeing now, Salah scoured terror sites scoured for them. information on putting together a pressure cooker bomb. Scoured terror sites. Like those used at the Boston Marathon bombing. And with his arrests, this is a big number. There are now 52 U.S. citizens and permanent residents indicted. 52. On ISIS-related charges. ISIS-related charges. By the way, that includes being inspired or inspiring 
ISIS-related things and activities. In just the past 15 months, a man who identified himself as Salah's father says he's shocked by the allegations. And you know what? He claims his son was set up by informants. Watch. I was setting him up with the informants, and they should know. I'm not going to say nothing else. I'm not going to say nothing else, but set up by informants, you should know. You should know. You set up your son? Uh, no. You talk to them. So you're saying that they, they set up your son? They, you should know. My son, even, my son doesn't even drive. How is he going to drive the car? My son doesn't even drive. How is he going to drive the bomb? My son doesn't even drive. Interesting. Hmm. So uh, 50 in the last 15 months. And we have an article linked up in the uh, show notes. Let me see if I can pull that up or if the New York Times is going to be a jerk. Oh, I grabbed, a, I grabbed a picture, too, and I did stash a picture version of it in the show notes. Uh, but in the show notes, there is a, a link to the New York Times article where they've mapped out ISIS attacks. Yeah, here we go. And if you come down here, you can see the hot spots. Uh, you can see uh, we're a lot more. A lot more. Look at this. They got uh, attacks directed or linked to ISIS and attacks inspired by ISIS. Hmm. A lot of attacks inspired. All the, all the dots with uh, all the cleared circled dots were attacks inspired by ISIS. So uh, when you get to lump that in, it makes it a big, big number because you can say that some 17-year-old boy on Twitter inspired some crazy man in New York with a knife to go after cops. And you've made the link, and that's all it takes. That's the only thing it takes to make that link, and it makes me – it makes my brain hurt. It makes my brain hurt. Uh, and so we got to take – we got to shift gears. Uh, we got to have a high note. Because this is just – this is ridiculous. And this, this is – I wonder – I caught this uh, – I think I caught this on NPR as well. And uh, this is sort of one of those – are they uh, – when I listen to this, I can't help but be skeptical. Are they trying to imply that we need more regulation? Are they trying to imply that we can't – people can't manage themselves without the government telling them how to, how to like properly grow and manage things? Well, I'll play this clip, but you tell me if I'm just maybe being a little too critical. States that legalize marijuana are struggling to make sure pot buyers don't get sick from pesticides. Many commercial cannabis growers use chemicals to control bugs and mold, but the plant's legal status is unresolved nationally. So are guidelines for which pesticides are safe. From member station KUNC, Luke Runyon reports. This grow room at Medical MJ Supply in Fort Collins, Colorado, has all the trappings of your modern marijuana cultivation facility. Glowing yellow lights, plastic irrigation tubes, and rows of knee-high cannabis plants. Nick Dice is the owner. We're seeing a crop that's in probably its third to fourth week of bloom right now. The plants are vibrantly green, happy and healthy. And Dice says that's because the company's taken a hard line on cleanliness. We have people that that's their only job is to look for any infections or anything that could cause potential damage to the crop. As any farmer will tell you, damage to the crop equals damage to the bottom line. Dice's employees used to spray the crop with mild chemicals. We would switch between multiple pesticides and mildew treatments, and we would try and treat anywhere from every three to four days, honestly. Dice says he's seen other operations crumble as their cannabis succumbs to mildew or bugs. Pest controls ensure a good yield, and when it comes to cannabis... Yields really matter. How much do you think that this room is worth? Oh, Lord. I'd have to count some plants really <laughs> quick. See, three, two, oh, 160 to 180,000. Yeah, that's $180,000. And protecting that yield is hard work. That's why many growers in states that have legalized recreational or medical marijuana use chemicals. 
But it's the federal government that tells farmers which pesticides are safe to use. You see what I'm saying? So, like without the federal government, we're too dumb to figure out what pesticides are safe to use, or like customers wouldn't just stop buying the stuff that makes them sick. Chemicals. But it's the federal government that tells farmers which pesticides are safe to use, and so far the feds want nothing to do with legalized marijuana. Colorado State University entomologist Whitney Cranshaw says that's left growers to experiment with little oversight. See, the thing about that though is, <clears throat> um, I don't know if you guys knew this, uh, but people were growing weed in Colorado uh, before last year, and they've probably been growing weed for longer than you've been alive. If you're listening to this show, there is a good chance that they've probably kind of, you know narrowed in on what works and what what doesn't work and uh, there's a pretty good see it's not it's not i mean i understand their I, I guess the argument they're trying to make legitimately the argument they're trying to make is the scale they're operating at now is forcing them to go into new directions they haven't gone before but i i i just it really seems like that's kind of a problem that would pretty much self correct as fast as possible uh but what do I know? Uh, the rest of the report is in uh, the uh, supporter sync, if you'd like. You know, the uh, uh, Unfiltered show is uh, supported by our patrons. You can go to patreon.com slash unfiltered to support this show. Then you get access to, when you pay more than $5, to all of the source code for this show. And at $2, you get access to the overtime show. I got one clip I want to play just as we sort of watch some of Hillary Clinton and uh, and her uh, her campaign around that. I want to play Bill Clinton and another interview with him about the uh, Clinton Foundation and if there's a conflict of interest. We'll play this and then we're going to get out of here for the day. I want to um, address a couple issues having to do with the Clinton Foundation since it has been in the news a lot lately. Um, I know you've said, I've heard you say that there's no evidence that any of the donors who have given to the foundation received anything in response from the State Department while Secretary Clinton was there? Nobody even suggested it or talked about it or thought about it till the political season began, and somebody said, well, what about this? Now, some of the companies that have supported the foundation for years, many of them before she was ever Secretary of State. She was a senator when I left office, right. so... At, they do this. They do philanthropy, too. No one has ever asked me for anything or any of that. Well, let me ask you about that, because I think a lot of people might say, okay, you say there's no evidence that anything was done for them, but can you really say that these companies, these wealthy individuals, these governments, none of them sought anything? I mean, some of them did have business before the State Department. Oh, of course. What's he going to say? What's he gonna, all right, I'll let him say it. What's he gonna, you know what he's going to say. I don't know. You never know what people's motives are. But in this case, I'm pretty sure everybody that gave to Haiti in the aftermath of the earthquake saw what they saw on television, was horr- were horrified, and wanted to make a difference. And You're not saying, you say you don't know if anybody sought any favor, just that there was no... No, and I don't think Hillary would know either. She, you know, she was pretty busy those years. And I don't, I, I, I never saw her study a list of my contributors or, and I had no idea who was doing business before the State Department. But what I will say this, she believed that part of the job of the Secretary of State was to advance America's economic interests around the world. If she hadn't been doing this economic diplomacy work, nobody would have been doing it. And, but I never thought about whether there was any Overlap. I'll just give you an example. America's always ha- having to lobby for American-made airplanes 
because we believe that I'll let him you know what I just really can't I can't care anymore I couldn't care anymore but I do find it to be sort of like uh, they got caught with their pants down and one of the things he said there was well nobody ever said anything uh, and then all of a sudden it became the political season now people are saying stuff that's because you snow jobbed everybody with a charity and you took money for like the Hades relief and stuff yeah yeah that's 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 how that worked that's a pretty good trick actually I should think of that and meanwhile I'm just doing the podcast thing. So uh, Mr. Chase should be back next week on episode 149 of the Unfiltered program. We'd love to have you join us live. We do, we do the show Wednesdays. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time zone. If you're in the Pacific time zone, we usually start around 530 for the pre-show. Start ramping up the supporter show around then. And then the main show kicks off around 6 p.m. And you can go to unfiltered.reddit.com throughout the week to make this show even better. Give us your suggestions for stories, interact there, feedback, all those kinds of things. Your boats. We'd love to have that. Unfilter.reddit.com. Oh, and don't forget, I also have a new Twitter account. It's the same handle, but a new account. I uh, switched it up. Now I am twitter.com slash chrislas, and you can follow the network. That network is twitter.com slash jupitersignal. And uh, that is uh, where we'll have, like, official show news and things like that. Twitter.com slash Chris Ellis. I have no idea what I'm going to tweet there. You know what I need to do is I need to go on a road trip. Take this show on the road, and then I'll tweet the journey. That seems like the perfect thing for a personal Twitter account. In the meantime, maybe I could tweet pictures of... I don't have any cats. I don't know what... I don't know. Pictures of my kids, I guess? That's almost as bad as cats. Not as quite. All right, well, that'll bring us to the end of this week's episode of of episode 148 of Unfiltered. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode. Be sure to join us next week. And if if you'd like to join us in a mumble edition, we've been kicking it around, and we, we didn't get a good like feel if you guys want to do that. Unfiltered.reddit.com. Start a thread over there and let us know. Should we do a mumble edition, like a call-in? Maybe do that from time to time. That'd be pretty cool. Maybe do that. Let us know. Unfiltered.reddit.com. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. See you right back here next week. That's how we go. Uh, that's how we roll.